0: Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Long Monday podcast presented to you by Atlantic Stage and a group of uh, company members from Atlantic Stage. My name is Steve Harley. Tonight, uh, I'll be joined by Jason Adams, uh, Mike Kane, and Caleb Salibi. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, sound and sound design in theater. What it's for, when it's been good, when it's been bad, uh, how it can enhance a show or how it could possibly even detract, but really what it's all about. And we have some people here with experience in that field. But first, I want to introduce you or let our uh, guys, my fellow uh, Atlantic Stage Company members, introduce themselves. Jason, say, hey, how's it going? Howdy, howdy. How's everybody doing? Good to be back again. Yeah, Mike, what's up? Nothing much, man. Glad to have the four horsemen back. It's good to be back in the round. That's right. And Caleb, what are you up to this evening? How are you? Hanging out with you guys. Yeah. I'm well, glad to be here. It's always time well spent. But anyway, yeah, like Mike said, this is sort of going to be a group conversation tonight. We want to talk about sound design. It's just an area of interest for us. And we cover uh, all areas, uh, theater in the Long Monday podcast. So, uh, Mike, why don't you get us started? If um, you've done sound design for several shows at Atlantic Stage, that was something I think that we gave you at Atlantic Stage an opportunity to do first. Yeah. But I know from, I think I was in the shows you've done and you've done excellent work right off the bat.
1: Well, thank you for that. Um, I think that's the four of us here, will, well, Jason, you might have a different approach to this, but I think at the end of the day, I think we could all say that we wear different hats when it comes to Atlantic Stage. We're not simply actors. We're not simply directors. We try and do multiple things. And so at first, when I came to Atlantic Stage, it was just the mindset of, oh, I just want to act. I don't want to even attempt stage management, sound design, whatever. Uh, But then a few years on and after becoming a company member, I was like, okay, I need to do something more than acting. And for me, it always seemed like, well, this might sound weird, but I feel like I kind of owe a lot to sound design. And what I mean by that is having consumed media for a long time, um, I've always been a huge fan of music and I've always been a huge fan of music in film in general. I think that, and we can talk about this as well. I think that what sound adds to something like film is just monumental And so it was an interesting approach for me to go, okay, is there a show I can do or at least assist on where I can take the reins of what can I add to this sonically that can add to this show or this moment or this scene or whatever? And so I tried to do it uh, many times, as you mentioned. So it's been a really interesting approach. uh, I I mean, what most people assume is that sound, like anything in theater, it just kind of happens out of nowhere. Like we just go see a show and the sound's just there. Like anything in theater, that's not true. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of failure to know what's working and what's not. Um, but sound design, there's obviously a lot that goes into it. And I think it's just a really interesting approach to try and sonically commit to a show as opposed to how, how am I going to make this look? I think it's really interesting to ask ourselves, how are we going to make this sound? Sure. Which um, is what I find is the value of sound design.
0: Caleb, you've done some as well, right? Sound yeah. design. Yeah.
2: And yeah. And I, I, uh, I agree with Mike's sentiment, you know, the uh, the importance of being able to utilize sound in a way that's going to enhance not only the story, but elevate the, um, the environments and the, create, in a sense, the world of the play. I think that it has a lot to do dramaturgically with allowing the audience to enter the world of the play.
0: Hmm. Hey, Jason, I was just thinking, you know, you've done more directing than any of us, including me. Um, Where does sound sort of rank? Like when you're thinking about, you know, pre-production of a show and what you want out of it, like where does sound rank or does it just depend on, uh, you know, the individual show as far as the importance of it and the technical elements? I mean, I think for me,
3: it's, uh, it depends on the show, but I've Michael probably know this. We've talked about this a lot that I really like movies and television. And so for me, I look at films a lot and, and music is such an important part for me. So even when I'm looking at plays, I always sometimes think about what's the theme, where's it going? And it almost becomes part of the creative process for me. Uh, but depending on the show, some shows I think require more sound effects. Some shows require more audio things, more musical choices. Um, I mean, I've I've done shows where it's like I really said I wanted to score the whole show like a movie i mean literally like sound effects under every single scene it rises and falls um and gotten some grief from the sound designers i've worked with before doing it they eventually did it because they heard what i was trying to do because you're you're kind of almost like a director you're selling that as much as you are anything else and i think some technical people love doing that sort of stuff i imagine mike and caleb probably would if i came to them and said if they were designing a show said i want to score the whole thing i want to do this they'd be like oh yeah Let's try something because it's, it's like an experiment. And then some people are so used to doing things one way or the other. But for me, when it comes to picking a show, I think music is almost just as important. I think about the pre-show. I think about intermission. I think about the, you know, the bows at the end, what show is song is playing during that. I I think it's all part of the experience because if you're going to create a show, I think it needs to be all thematically
0: sort of goes together. I wonder, together in one piece. I, I wonder why in the shows you chose to score, why why those particular shows? I think it, it, it added for me. Uh, the,
3: the one I did the most was The Library, um, which the show is about school shooting. Um, and it takes place. And so it's such a show where the, the stage, they don't have much sets to it. It's a very minimalistic set. I think even the original version, I think Steven Soderbergh did the original version. So it's a very like minimalistic piece. Um, and I think because of what was happening there at, it, it was obviously done at Theater Republic and Theater Republic has such a big space. And to me, the show is a very, it's a small show, like it, it's kind of more of an intimate piece. And I think the sound was just to fill that space in that room um, more in some ways. It was a choice. I, I It was one of those things I thought about doing it and then we tested it and did it. And the more and more I added pieces and added layers to it, it sounded really cool. Like it worked um, for these things. And I know I worked with Mike, like helping me find music, like tonal type things and different soundtracks and different music that works. Like we used a lot of nine inch nails, uh, music, uh, like just, um, you know, Trent Rezzler's more score based stuff. Um, a lot think, of Tim Hecker. Yep. Yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. And so it was just more the atmospheric kind of music. And it just, it seemed to work for that type of show. Did that uh, put, but there's other shows, yeah.
0: Did that put more pressure on the board op then to, uh, I mean, oh, a, yeah. a lot of cues with that, I guess, too.
3: Oh, yeah. When I started throwing it, I mean, but I think what worked, though, is that David Catton Johnson, who was the one who was doing it. David's done so many musicals at TOR. So I think for him, he's used to doing that many cues. It's just he was used to working with like, like an audio track cue. So he would know, you know, this person starts singing here, click, go, click, go. So whereas this, it would like I would literally say so on this third line that she goes in, you need to start playing this track. And then it needs to fade out before the next person's line. So, like, it, it was really sort of, man. I think it had like 95 or cues in an hour and 20 minute play. Well, not know? not
0: to mention, too, just levels, too. I mean, you know, work, yeah. working levels and like how high you want it in a scene, is it underscoring sure. or is it more present? Yeah. I mean, all that. So, what's the most, what, yeah. What's? The, I'm sorry, I was going to say, oh, sorry, Mike, I was going to ask you what the most sound heavy show you've done is. But go ahead with whatever. <laughs> If I could just talk to
1: Jason's point about the library. Uh, I was actually in the library. I was one of the actors in the library. And as Jason said, I was sort of like music consultant, I guess. Uh, We talked a lot about what we thought would be really great for it. And another thing about sound design that I think is really beneficial is that oftentimes when a scene ends, we have sound transitioning us to the next scene. And so it's really important with what are we going to fill this void with? Because we don't just want the lights to go down and then silence for the next 10 seconds while actors get in position, right? We want something there. And With a show like The Library, my God, it's such a huge, heavy drama about high school shooting. Like, it's very serious, heavy material. So you don't want, you know, upbeat music at any point in the show because it doesn't call for it. And we were trying to figure out, okay, what music fits tonally but also allows us to progress this story in a way. And The Library was a lot – I mean, I hate to say a subject matter like that was fun to find the sound for. But, you know, it was really interesting to engage with what works. Um, A lot of The Library was instrumental. Uh, I know the Nine Inch Nails songs we closed with had lyrics in it, but a lot of the other stuff was just instrumental, piano cuts, things like that. It was pretty um, much all
3: instrumental. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the whole thing besides the opening and closing. Yeah.
1: And I think it worked because, I, again, I think that given the subject matter of the show, it didn't really call for lyrics. And I couldn't imagine lyrical content for the show in terms of the sound, at least.
0: And that, um, and, and all that use, was that was not prescribed specifically in the script, right?
1: No, not at all. And, and I think that's
3: what it was too. It's like, I looked at it and it was sort of like, if anybody's familiar with that show, it's almost like a documentary. It's like, you're sort of following this girl around, experiencing it. So I had this idea of watching, I mean, I listened to like p- serial podcasts and I listened to like, I like plenty of these murder mystery documentaries. So for me, it was sort of like, what kind of musically tonally are they're doing? And like, I mean, I was pulling like music from trailers that I liked that I was testing. I think at the time, the movie, The Mule, Clint Eastwood's movie was out. So I love that like, minimalistic music that he had with the piano score I was like testing with those and there was times where Mike would know this we were testing things David would start testing it like the problem is we really built this within like a week of the show being technical so it was like I had all these songs in my head and then I would drop them I really just emailed all these tracks to David I said let's test this song and test this song and test this song and so the actors were having to try and figure out they were doing scenes and sometimes a song would start playing and you could tell they were like is this a song playing in the background? Am I hearing music in the monitors? And so I had to like tell the actors, like you will hear tracks. You will hear like music playing because it's just going to be part of it. And then after a while, I think some of the actors like loved it. Like I know some actors were like, I was waiting to hear that
0: one's track. As soon as it kicked in, it's like, that's my scene. I know where I'm going. I was going to say like, you know, I mean, you can look at that as a hard thing as an actor. You can look at that as an opportunity, right? And that's something you can sure. do, The People you know, people do that in acting class too. Like you do your monologue and they accompany it with music and you try and do the monologue feeling the music. I mean, that's great. I think it's a great opportunity for somebody. And also if they're lost, I, I think this is not just about the library, but other shows too. I
3: think sometimes when you have music, it sort of sets a tone too. So you as an actor, you know, if we're doing a comedy, it's something fun to start playing at the, the top of the show. You just sort of like all right, all right. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like when we were doing um, Tuna Christmas. It's like, you know, you had all those Christmas tracks. You couldn't help but have this kind of like holiday vibe would kick in because at the very beginning, we're supposed to go out there and it's like, holiday, holiday. you're like, yeah, okay. All right,
1: here we go. It's Christmas time. You know, you, you kind of get it in your head and you start feeling it this way too. Steve, you brought up the, I think you were bringing up the question of what's a, the most sound heavy show we've done as far as a technical position like that. Yeah. Uh, to bring it back into Atlantic stage, I think for me, it would be Waiting for Godot. Um, and I know that Steve, you, Tom and Kevin are giving itch right now. Cause I say Godot as opposed to Godot, but oh, whatever. Uh, yeah. it's just the way I was raised <laughs> up. So, oh, <laughs> I know you Tom and Kevin hard. are getting an itch. Like, what is that? What just happened? Um, but no, so the thing, if you're not familiar with that show, uh, listener, it's, it's a very, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, it's just kind of like in this sort of limbo of this existence of this plane where it just kind of describes this barren place with a tree. And that's really all the setting you get for Godot. So for me, it was like, how in the world do I create sound for this? Like, what possibly is it calling for? Um, But that was also the appeal to it, because it was going to be a challenge. And I was like, okay, this seems really interesting. What do I do? And um, again, it was a lot of instrumental work. And it was no lyrics of any kind. I didn't want lyrics anywhere in the show, because I didn't think it called for it. And I also didn't want any sort of electronic instruments in the show, like electric guitar, for example. I didn't want any of it. I wanted it all to be acoustic bass. And it was really engaging to Steve, you were actually in the show as an actor. So it was engaging to see you guys perform and have the music score it as well. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite moments, the sound designer was lucky's monologue who was played by Stephen Craig. If you know, he has this very extensive long monologue and Ben Soda and Kevin Ferguson, who directed the show said, I wonder if we can underscore this with something. Cause otherwise it would just be Steven talking for like literally five minutes. And it was like, okay, I'll see what I can do. And there's this, uh, Sound dis- sound artist, this sort of like looping artist named William Bazinski, uh, and he does a lot of looping tracks. Like he'll take a sound and loop it for ten minutes straight and make that his song. And he has this one called Water Music. That the second I heard it, I just knew I'm like, oh, that's that's totally it. So listener out there, you can go listen to it of your own leisure. But having Steven do his monologue with this playing behind him, I just c- thought completely captured the moment. Um, so it's a moment like that where again you go, how can the sound influence what's happening on stage? And in that moment, I thought it at least from my perspective it really worked well
0: well i i think it's i find it interesting you know like you haven't done this tons as opposed to somebody who's devoted their life <clears throat> to technical theater but i your decision to pick songs without words i think is an interesting and instinctually write one, you've got a show that is for, again, for the listeners who don't know it is basically absurd. What people say to each other does oftentimes not make sense. And oftentimes they don't hear each other, apparently. So to have songs with words would, yeah, I think completely cloud that purpose of the play of highlighting the uh, inability of language to express things. So anyway, I just, you know what I mean? So that's a decision you seem to have made instinctually that I think is, you know, the perfect one for that particular play. But it's one of those but many small decisions that go into sound design. Yeah. And I've also
1: sort of leaned towards show. I think the only one that stands out is 4,000 miles, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I usually sort of lean towards shows that are very nondescript. And mm-hmm. what, what I mean by that is like Waiting for Godot or The Library. They're very nondescript in that it doesn't really give you the direction to go with it. I mean, Waiting for Godot for sure. Um, because like, you know, I had to decide, do I want like crickets? because they're in this sort of wasteland area, is there any other thing around them? And I decided, no, there's not. There are no other, they're the only things in this place, is these four people, essentially. No animals, no nothing. So I had to eliminate all nature sounds, as it were. Uh, But, you know, you think of something like 4,000 Miles, and I think, Caleb, you can speak to this as well, because the shows you've done in sound design are more, I think, geared towards the opposite of what I'm talking about is, you know, are they in a cityscape? Are they, you know, at a local diner? Is their cars going by? You know, decisions like that also come into play.
2: Yeah. And I think you're right. Um, my experience has been slightly different um, in that regard. I mean, not that I haven't used some sort of uh, cityscape because I, I did uh, have a couple of scenes where I had to underscore for an entire scene or monologue a specific setting that was set in the Middle East. So it was, you know, a, a marketplace, something like that. But I typically, you know, you you've got sometimes you've got your settings sometimes you've got you know your foley sounds and your sound effects all these all of these things. The way and this would be an interesting uh, point of conversation with you, Mike. How we design sign uh, sound to begin with? How how we come at a play? Um, aside from having conversations with the actors and with the director and in what direction that director wants to take the show, I come about it. Uh, I come at the at the piece. I I try and find the through line theme and then the theme for each scene. And then I pick whatever transition sound is in between, you know, scenes. It has to either complement the scene we just saw or lead into the scene we're about to go into. Um, And that's the way I kind of pick and choose what types of sound I'm going to insert into the show because I want to make sure that I keep the audience in the world, whether it's helping them kind of make sense of what they just saw or prepare them for what they're about to see and making sure that in all of it, it is connected to the through line theme of the entire show.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's not how I think about it at all. So that's good. Um, (laughs) For me, I think it's more of the, uh, and again, that's not to say you're wrong, Caleb, that of course there's any approach to sound design. And and I think it's a good thing that we are different in that way because it leads to conversation. But I think for more for me, it's more of the emotion of the audience. It's like, how am I going to feel in hearing this at this moment. Um, Like for 4,000 Miles, for example, which is the most recent sound design I did, um, I, as anyone who knows the show or saw it knows, is that I kind of limited, not limited is the wrong word. I chose two bands in particular. I chose American Football and Foxing, if you're familiar with those bands. I chose those bands because the emotional appeal of their music, I felt a connection to when I read the script and thought of, you know, Leo's journey and everything that he was going through. So for me, it was a matter of, I feel this way when I hear this music. I want my audience to feel the same thing that I feel when it's going through. Uh, and whether they did or not, you know, that's up to the audience member, right? But when certain scenes happen, right, how do they progress into, like, scene ends, we get this sound cue, we get this music, what am I feeling at this moment? That's usually how I approach it. Although, Caleb, yeah. I see you're smiling, so I feel like you got a response.
2: No, and it's it's just, it's a really interesting approach because, and I completely respect that, and I thought the sound design was fantastic, but I also as the actor ha- who played Leo, mm-hmm. I couldn't listen to the sound that you chose for the show in my preparation. If if I was going to listen to music in preparation for um, the night, I had to listen to my own selection that I felt that my character would have listened to because I couldn't connect to the music that you ch- you, sh- you chose. And the the way that you say that you felt at the end of a scene, yeah, I felt differently sometimes. Um, sometimes I felt it and I thought it was right on par, but as the actor who played it, I, I, I couldn't connect as much. Um, I don't, I don't think with the way that you connected to the music and the way that it made you feel. And I'm not saying that in the way I sound design, I completely eliminate, uh, feeling and emotion Mm -hmm. because I do think that that is very important. Um, it, it's, it's very valid and it should, it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't detract from whatever emotion was being felt in the previous scene. It shouldn't detract from that, you know, that should complement it. But, um, I think, and that's and this is where we differ. I think that maintaining and elevating the idea of the play, to me, takes priority than you know how I feel.
3: Sure. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in here and say I know that you guys are both giving different descriptions to this, but I'm listening to it and I feel like you're transitionally kind of almost coming at it the same way. Uh, in some ways, um, like I know Mike's looking at it from an emotional point, but Caleb, you're looking at it almost from a emotional of where you think the audience to like taking them through, does it make sense? Like you're, you're carrying one scene into the next, like I want the through line and the feeling and the vibe to continue on. But I think Mike is essentially kind of doing the same thing He's just internally, artistically looking at it from his perspective and where he's going with it emotionally. You're looking at where you think the audience and the story is telling it emotionally. So I think it's really interesting how you're pairing it up and looking at it from two different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, I think both work, but I think um, it's also, I think whenever you take a gig or a job and do anything technical or artistic, Mike or you yourself too. It's like you want to take it for a reason. Like you're passionate about it too. And so Mike's passion is that he feels the music and this is where he wants to feel. And and like you said, as an actor, it made you feel differently because you weren't connecting to the music right away, just because you had a different vibe, you had a different feeling using 4,000 miles. And so I think it's just interesting as like artists, when you hear things like that, because it's like, I love the music that Mike chose for it, but I can totally understand as an art actor, or an actress when you go into a show and you hear like lead in music or intro music or transitional music, you may be like, why did the designer pick that man? It just, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like, but that's how it is. Artists have different views and different perspectives. So, like, we were talking about talent versus technique or, or I mean, like, Steve, we were talking about like the other week, like you can look at one thing and say, I can't stand the way that person did that. And the other person would say, but that totally makes sense. You know, exactly. it's just sort of like that
0: perspective. I mean, obviously all the sound design stuff has to be done under the auspices of the director and what they want for the show too. But it is interesting. The dilemma I've never thought about it. See, I haven't thought deeply about sound design. I admit I'm a bad person. I mean, I've thought of anyway, um, is that it doesn't matter what you choose you could choose classical music to reinforce a scene at the end you could choose a, i don't know some extraneous you know hammer noise in the distance i don't care what it is every audience member is also different and are going to perceive it so you have this sort of dilemma it's like i guess it's like how do you connect with the most people i don't know you guys are the sound people i don't know know what i'm saying though yeah. So, yeah and i think it's
2: it was to go on that because i took a very it was an interesting approach to Kevin Ferguson's um, play, The Other Side of the Sky. It was a world premiere, and I chose, and this wasn't just entirely. I mean, I ran it by the director, Tom, um, and we both felt the same way, that we wanted to kind of use jazz as sort of the the underlying score for the show. But you could do that show with anything, um, honestly. Um, we decided to do jazz because... As things progressed throughout the show, you got um, a little bit more chaotic and confused, and you know there was a, up into a tipping point. And we, I used John Coltrane, um, "Love Supreme," uh, in several parts as transition sound music to uh, to different scenes because of the way that they transitioned into one scene following another scene, it was building up to a certain point, the climax of the scene or the climax of the play and using jazz specifically because regardless of my feelings on jazz, a lot of people sound think it sounds very chaotic. John Coltrane specifically and that that album, too. And so I thought it was interesting to be able to u- utilize jazz and several other artists. You know, I used Thelonious Monk, um, you know, uh, Dinah Washington, all of these guys. And it was to me, I was able to kind of create the sound world, the world of the play through sound and i thought that that was i mean obviously i'm sure if mike designed that that show um sound wise it would have sounded a lot differently and i'd I'd be interested to hear your ideas on that mike
1: Well, I was going to say you had this uh, this notion that we could have done anything. You know, I actually thought other side of the sky should have had Norwegian black metal in it. That was my personal <laughs> okay. approach. Okay, um, all right. But that, not, I second uh,
0: that. But, I, I heard that too. Not, yep,
1: yep. <laughs> well, no, it's a, no. You're right. It's absolutely interesting that you know. Yeah, Catholicism. Norwegian <laughs> right. black metal. Yeah. And metal
3: yeah, it Goes absolutely. together, hand in hand.
1: <laughs> but you make a good point in that. You know, if as we saw with your sound design of that show, if I had been sound designer, it probably would have been a completely different sound design not to say that's a bad thing of course that's no, just not. yeah that's just individualism and i think that's the great thing about theater um but it's always interesting to look back on uh, and uh, you know we're local theater here we're not like internationally known or anything so it's not like our sound designs are carrying the weight of the world or anything but you think back <laughs> to like the most classic examples like going back to film jaws right john williams score in jaws it makes that movie that score like if you didn't have that score there i don't think jaws would be anywhere near as effective right but that's such an iconic score now that like the second you hear it you go oh that's jaws right i'm not i'm not saying i'm trying to do that with my sound designs right but i still want that same moment to happen of that like huge emotional like carrying through um which again is at the forefront of a lot of my thought but it's that sort of idea of how sound can really impact a viewer And I think that with effective sound design work, that happens all the time, whether or not, and rarely does anyone come out of a show and go, man, the sound design was amazing, right? They're usually talking about the acting or the, you know, whatever. Um, But it's, I think it's still felt, even though people don't really talk about it. It's in any case. I mean, people feel the music most of the time, but they don't really speak to it. It's like one of those hidden things that just kind of happens as they're viewing it.
0: I should, Um, I should know the answer to this, but who did the, who did the um, sound for PEMDAS? Kristoff?
1: That? Well, Kristoff chose the song, uh, but Stephanie Yancey did the sound design particularly. Uh, she kind of like mixed all of it, but Kristoff chose the song that was repeating, I think is what you're talking about. Yeah, Kristoff chose that song in particular.
0: Yeah. I was just wondering because that like, so she just chopped the song up and they used different pieces. Like I remember the song because it was used so frequently, but it was also used well and it was really a link between every scene, which it needed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I So that really, that I'm, that's just one example of sound that i do recall you know that was heavily used heavily it really helped propel the story more than other sound designs might have well also i think
3: the other thing about that song too steve is it it's a generational type song so it millennial it's a millennial song and it fit the millennial context of it Mm -hmm. uh caleb i'm gonna harken back just for a second to other side of the sky um i i'm gonna go ahead and just throw it out here i didn't like the jazz music in that show i like jazz music but i didn't like it in that show and i think hmm. the real reason for me i didn't like it is because other side of the sky is a young show and i felt the jazz made it feel like it was older does that make sense what i'm trying to say like and that's the other thing too i think opinion wise so like Pim das, when you use that can you find me in the club can you, you know when they're doing that song it kept it in that grounded kind of like youthful vibe and it was in that time like feeling um you know, 4,000 Miles, what Mike was doing, I felt like it's basically like a Death Cab for Cutie type music. You know, it's just kind of like, but it, the tonally of it worked because it, it. I could see like this is like a millennial sad, I mean, the best word to use it, it's a sad bastard story, right? It's like one of the things you go, oh, you know, okay, this family, we love it. But it's like that kind of music. I could hear like, you know, a Rachel McAdams film in it, right? But when I had, when you had, you know, <laughs> Steve's laughing because you know what I'm talking about. But like, but, but like for Other Side of the Sky, the moment you use jazz, jazz to me is, for me personally, when I hear it in a show, it's a professional sound. It's well, not professional, but it's it's used so much in music and commercials and film and thing because it works almost always. It can, can you know, like it says, it can be chaotic, but it can also, it, like you use a play like whip, a movie like Whiplash, jazz is totally important because it's part of the story. Like jazz makes it the feel. But when you have a story like Other Side of the Sky, for me, it just, it felt like. You had a young cast, a young story, and then a an older, more mature vibe. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? The music almost tonally made it feel to me like it was being more serious than it needed to be. I don't know. That sounds
0: weird. What I'm trying to say. Not that I hated it. It's no. just for me it, that didn't work. If Caleb doesn't mind, I'd like to before. Well, I, you can respond to it, Caleb. But before we're done with this, I'd like to expand that and go. Well, okay, in that case, then what could uh, else could possibly work? Is my next question. Yeah, you. but you should respond to it, Caleb. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, no work
2: anyone ever does is going to you know appeal to everyone. And, sure. Yeah. Um. And I I completely respect that. I mean, I can totally see where you're coming from with that. Um. Logically, it makes perfect sense. Um. I felt. And I hope that the majority of people that saw it um, felt that tonally it did make sense. But sure. aside from the fact that I'm using older sound to accompany a a, a younger story, it resonates with people differently, and that's what's yeah. really interesting about art.
3: Yeah, and I'm
0: not—I wasn't trying to like be like harsh about it, but I mean, no. I, everybody has that no. no. feeling. I wonder what other options would be. Considering the issues of the play, again, for the listeners who don't know, maybe you guys can refresh me. I mean, I saw the play. Well, it refreshes there. Are, there are a variety of issues in the play, so I'm not sure how I would approach it with sound design.
3: I I mean, for me, I think he's got the script with him. Um, you know, for me, I, I feel like you could, I could have heard. I mean, I could have heard the same kind of music Mike had for 4000 Miles. I feel like you could have had um, at times more poppy, uh, female based. I could have heard. I, I, I was just hearing like, you know, female singer songwriter kind of sound would have been interesting for me. um, Is it? With that kind of sound.
0: I guess that play is told mostly from her perspective, right? Yeah. Is that how you determine? I mean,
3: I I even think if you had like some weird,
0: like folky version, uh,
3: religious, like Christian songs playing, but did it in a, does that make sense? Like a lot of striper, a lot of of striper. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, but you know, but I mean like, you know, if you had like this, a weird sound, you could have had this like minimalistic, guitar sound or some kind of a, I don't know, like jazz worked, but at times I felt like it was the show itself is a very minimal play. Like Mm -hmm. I think Kevin's play is a very simple, simplistic show. And sometimes I think the music was almost more complex than the show was. Does that make sense?
2: I, I'm inclined, I'm inclined to strongly disagree with that one. That's fine. I'd really be interested in in talking to Kevin because he's the playwright um, Mm -hmm. for this show. I'd be really interested to see because I never really talked to him about how he thought the sound design went. Um, But understanding the show, and it's been a while since I've read it, but to my recollection, one of the themes of the show among, you know, at least one or two or three uh, was what is your purpose in life or how do you know your purpose in life and how do you reconcile uh, differences of religion to what you know to be true and and good and pure and so that those are very very complex ideas and so the idea of the chaos that was happening within you know this particular character's life trying to reconcile those things and then also deal with some you know apparition so to speak i thought was very fitting in the way that i i selected the the music but if it detracted in any way, if I'd be interested to hear, you know, whenever this episode is released, if anyone in the audience hears this and then felt the same way as you do, Jason, it'd be really interesting to know.
3: And it could be me because I pay attention to music a lot. I do. It's just one of the things I go with. Um, I don't know what it is because it 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 can either take or take me in or take me out. And I mean, and this that being said, I like jazz music because, to be honest, when I hear a show. During the show, I don't like to hear songs that have words in it either. I, I'm very much like sound, music, no words. Words are fine at like pre-intermission, after, or if like there's a specific track you got to hear. Like Frankie and Johnny at Claire Lune would have like a specific track you're hearing. But like, you know, other than that, I don't want to hear that stuff. I just, because I think it takes away from the audio, uh, like the dialogue. Um, so, but you know. Anyway.
1: Well, in response to that, Mr. Director, if I may, there is a show that I know you did that you had a lot of sound. You weren't the sound designer, but you were the director, and that was Steady Rain. And if I recall from that show, yes, you had a you know pre-show music, but there was only one instance in that show where you had music, which was the very end. Um, now, why does that decision come about?
3: Some shows are different. Like I said, I, I like shows, but I don't like Steady Rain doesn't need any music. Mm-hmm. Like I think the point of that show is there, they were both in this room. I don't know if anybody, people remember the show we did at Atlantic Stage. the state of two guys, they're in this like interrogation room talking. Um, I wanted to hear like the walls, you know, I wanted to hear the creaking in the building and I, all you want to hear is just Steve and Tom talking. I didn't want to hear anything else. But then uh, that choice think- of
1: track at the end was largely from what?
3: Uh, I don't know man it worked so well it, it was a vibe it was like it, I, for me it just played i like i like that track uh bonnie um, well, bon yeah, bear i love yeah and i think it just it, it totally fit way tom was going there at the end um and like i'm very th- filmatic so i like films uh like a cinematic ideology so when steve's leaving. It had this cinematic vibe for me at the moment, and so I just said, "Why not put a cinematic song at the end, sort of when someone's leaving?" And it just kind of worked. Did you uh, did I you like, like it, did it, Mike, or, it or not? Did, did
1: oh no? See, that's <laughs> the thing. I loved it. I love the choice. Uh, it. Yeah, I know that he didn't the,
0: even called and
1: to told me about it.
0: One now of the. I mean, I love, I love I love the sound
1: design for many reasons.
0: I, I'm sorry, but, but I will I will say as an actor, that's one of those. Like Caleb was saying, like you're in shows and you have no control as an actor over the sound design if you're lucky there will be songs used that you like but they're trying to reach the audience not you so you're not important but i will say like i say you're lucky if you get one and that was one selection that actually did help me as an actor actually in that last moment i mean it just helped the moment feel more expansive after again an hour and a half of claustrophobia basically
3: It's sort of a, the song is like a, you know, it's a cathartic, like release kind of song. And so that's why it just sort of, yeah.
1: But another thing I loved about that show choice wise was I never thought I would go see a theatrical show where Rage Against the Machine was in the pre-show, but damn it, I got it. And that was already good enough. I got my money's worth (laughs) out of that because I'm there. Rocket the rage, audience.
3: I had Moby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a hodgepodge of music in that beginning.
1: But another thing, um, we mentioned this earlier with Kevin's work. I think that one thing that'd be interesting to discuss, and again, this ties back to something I mentioned way earlier, which is like I like shows that are pretty expansive in terms of the direction you can take. Uh, and I think, Ke- or Caleb, the other side of the sky was kind of that way too, is that you yeah. had an expansive choice to work with. In mm-hmm. contrast to that, another Kevin Ferguson original, which I would argue does not have that, is Spinning Jenny which takes place at a midway carnival. That's a very specific direction for sound design, in my opinion, at least, right? If there's, you know, I don't know, heavy metal music, not that that would be, right? But that's like so, like who would do that, right? Mm -hmm. It's like carnival sounds, carnival music, that seems the direct approach, which I hate to say it, and I hate to say writers should be put in a box this way, but like that really doesn't interest me in terms of me being sound designer, is that, oh, it's a carnival show? Okay, well, here's all the carnival work, right? I'm more interested in a show that goes, here's the show, figure it out, which is shows I get drawn towards.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think and I, to what you're saying, Mike, too, I think some of that was pretty prescriptive in the script itself. I think there were times mm-hmm. when sound was called for, if I recall correctly. But I mm-hmm. could see another yep. sound designer different than you, like geeking out over the finding of weird noises and editing of it and all that. So, you know, I guess, you know what I mean? It's I, just, again, personal preference, I guess. You know, I'm inclined to agree with you, though, Mike, because um, greater
2: tuna uh, is very similar. And that that was a painful uh, show to the sound design because I had to listen to all of these, you know, Texas, you know, themes. And Come on, man. On repeat. <laughs> ah, it's ah. not my cup of tea, but it was still fun. But there were very it was a very specific tone. And so you know right out of the gate it's not open for interpretation. You there's a specific yeah. type of sound that this show needs. Yeah. And so you, you and then I don't think that that's a bad thing, but I I agree with your sentiment Mike that it is. It's like it's awesome. Any it, it, it for anything. If you have an open range and this is all of your playground, you can choose whatever you want to do and run with it. it. Doesn't have to be the right one right away, but you can just choose one and go. That's I love that. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter what I'm doing in theater. I, I love that ability.
3: I'm sure I'm sure sound designers feel the same way. The in general, in the professional world too, and they probably take the job doing the spinning jinnies because they know it's the, it's going to pay the bills and do it. But they're hoping they're going to get the the four thousand miles and the you know other side of the skies afterwards, and hopes they can stretch their legs. You know, I'm I'm sure John Williams. It's the same thing, you know, like early on, it was like, man, this Jaws thing, I could do whatever I want, uh, you know, but he's like, but we want you to play like classical in this other thing he's doing, you know, it's like early on. And so I think eventually, yeah, I think that's any, any. I think actors feel the same way too, you know, oh, yeah. you, you know, you, greater tuna is like, yeah, you, it's fun doing it, but you know, you're, it's, you know, after a while you're like, I'll be honest, that Christmas show too, we had the same eight songs
0: like (laughs) over
3: and over (laughs) again. So, after a while, you're like, This is the fourth time I've heard this Christmas song. They're like, uh, But yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it's with any artist, you want to try something different and try something new. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. Like, I did Steady Rain and I do The Library, which are very like, Where can you go? You can do almost anything with it. And then I do Boeing, Boeing, and Boeing, Boeing is very specific on what you have to have and what you want to do. So, you can't, as a director, it's like, there's not really much I can do with Boeing Boeing. It's I got to make sure the actors get their timing right, but it's a certain style of play. It's a very you know, heavy handed farce, you know, and this is like, you know, steady rain and library are very serious drama. Minimalist. Where do you go from it? So uh,
0: I got a question for you guys, uh, Mike and Caleb who have done this. Um, I know we're a small theater and I know sometimes we get, you know, overwhelmed or whatever, but how active have the directors been in, pre-production with what they wanted out of sound like you know i mean it should be it's something they should talk to you about They, you know i teach i used to teach my students in my class you know the directors you know they don't they're not the tech designers but they should have a clear idea of what they want out of each of the technical elements they should be able to express that to the the the, you know, the designer and get what they want out of them you know and come to a collaboration so has that been your what's what's been your experience so far again knowing that we're a small theater
1: well, in my case, I can give two contrasting examples. The first is 4,000 Miles, which Tom directed, um, and there was an early-on part where I had—I mean, I had the idea for the concept back when I knew I was going to sound design it, which was back in August, and the show was going to be in January. So I had a good while to figure it out, but I knew pretty early on what I wanted for it. Um, and I think at first Tom was pretty hesitant about the idea of having like these two bands be the thematic pull of the show. Um, And I had to, there were conversations I had with Tom where I was like, just listen to it for a second. Just give it a chance. And I think he eventually came around to it and he eventually liked it a lot. So there wasn't really a lot of, you know, conversations of, oh, no, this needs to go out the window. This needs to change a lot. In contrast to that, however, Godot, which um, was directed by Kevin and Ben, there were moments where Ben would love the sound design and Kevin would just not be with it at all. Uh, I remember a lot of moments where, I mean, there's that Tom monologue uh, in Act 2 where his character has this. He has the moment of the play where he's like, what are we doing? Like, what is this? And I wanted it to be underscored by music. Now, if you saw the show, you know that there was no underscore there because Kevin adamantly was like, there cannot be music here. But Ben was like, well, it kind of, and Kevin was like, no, no, cannot happen. And I was like, but Kevin, I got these great. And he's like, no, cannot happen. So we went back and forth for like two weeks on that. And eventually... Kevin won out. Um, and I think in the end, it was a good choice. Um,
0: Kevin, put because his, as, Kevin put his foot down a few times in that show. But, oh, a, yeah, but sometimes <laughs> that can be awful for a show. But luckily, folks at home, it, it was a, a, a really great working experience.
1: <laughs> and yeah, Kevin, I, I think in the end, Kevin was certainly right. Oh, yeah. Kevin knew that that was the huge moment of the show. The moment where one of the characters <laughs> goes, what am I doing here? Like, it doesn't need to be underscored. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I think Kevin was correct.
3: Yeah. But I think that's a moment where the director has to own it too. Right. So, I mean, I mean, like I will say this, like steady rain, the choice not to use any sound effects during that show was sort of like, that's mine. it could, it could could sink or fall, but it was like, you know, I was relying on the actors to sort of carry their, their scenes. And I think if it had something there, it would have been bad, but I'm sure there were people that were thought, man, if you'd had music in this part and this part and this part, but that was a show where it never ended. There was no breaks. It literally was like one person talking, one person moving, one person moving, one person moving. And I thought about ideas of what if I made sound effects of like the car chase scene, like he had just like these slight things under, under the bottom. And what if there was like, I even had like a video projection ideas I was thinking to do. And then it was like, nah, this is just too much. I'm put, I'm putting too much on top of something that doesn't need this much. Um, versus like the library, I pretty got, I probably could have gone even further with things. In fact, I did want to go further, but you know, why are you doing this? That's too political, too much. You're going too far. You're going with this, which I still wish I had gone further. Everybody has a creative ideology and they have to sort of go with it. Oh, and a side note, the music that was in Steady Rain, I didn't say this, it was all music used in police movies or TV shows. That's why it was in the play. Just, just
2: to say.
1: So. design your choice.
2: Yeah, there you go. Subliminal. So, <laughs> yeah. Caleb, do you yeah.
1: have any uh, experiences like that?
2: Um, I've, I've only been able, I've only had occasion to design sound for Atlantic Stage twice, and that was, uh, once with Tom as the director for um, The Other Side of the Sky, um, with Penny, uh, assistant directing, and then when Penny directed her directorial debut for Greater Tuna. Um. So, both in both instances. The directors were extremely trusting um when i first read the other side of the sky i heard jazz in the transitions and that was different than what i ended up choosing um and the the specific scene where if whoever um heard it you know if if you haven't read it um go and buy Kevin's play, The Other Side of the Sky," Man, Next Stage Ke- Press.
3: Kevin was Kevin, plugging his he play. He was, yeah, was already plugging it. <laughs> he, he plugged every
1: single thing in the, in the interview A-
3: that we A- did. People at home, just,
0: please support this playwright for God's sake.
1: This is time to be our sponsor. <laughs> We're going to have <laughs> hashtag, hashtag Kevin Ferguson.
0: That's right.
2: <laughs> but, but the scene where she's praying and uh, Mila, the, the actress who, who played the, the lead character – Um, I chose, uh, a piece from the singing nun. I don't remember her actual name, but it's, it's a French name. She's, she's a French, uh, nun and she's known as the singing nun. And there was a specific piece from her that I chose to, to play through that. And that was, that was something that I had to figure out. And I had to really speak with a director about, um, Tom and, and Penny about that, because I wasn't sure how it sounded to begin with. I was, expecting to go a more traditional route because if you, if anyone heard, I mean, it's all French you know, it's, it's beautiful sound, but it was very odd. And, but we ended up going with it because it was very eerie and nuanced to the moment, but you know, Tom also, I think when, when I first had the discussion, the first, uh, I think it was the first table read, um, where we did some, a production meeting right afterwards he also kind of had a, the idea for jazz as the soundtrack to the to this show. So we ended up um, going with that. But in most cases, though, that I've, I've had an experience that the directors have been very trusting in what I've come to creatively. And then if there is something that doesn't work, we'll work together and we'll change it because it is ultimately the story they're trying to tell. And they're, they are the director for the story mm-hmm. and how it's, where it's going to go. But um, it's been interesting to have that sort of, creative artistic license to just kind of choose what, what I think should fit and then makes tweaks along the way. I
0: still think some striper. I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry. (laughs) Striper. (laughs) Um, I was sitting here thinking like, and this is like a trivia question. I was thinking like, what, what for me has ever been, I wanted to ask you guys this too, but like briefly tell like the best, the most notable use of sound in a show you've ever uh, been involved in or experienced or witnessed. I have one. Can I tell mine real quick? It's only like a minute. Sure. Okay. I was in a play called on the open road there's two guys in a post apocalyptic world. Um, and they, uh, are searching for and find Jesus in a cave and we are supposed to stat. He's, he's playing cello. He doesn't speak. And we are supposed to stab him to death with his own cello bow. This is in the play. And so the director decided to do all this in slow motion with a lot of lighting effects. And he used a piece by, I think it was Kronos Quartet, a very slow, weird, cello-y kind of sounding piece. And, and all this happened. And it was one of those moments as an actor where the music was so, duh, it really just wrapped you up in it. So that's my favorite example of use of a sound in a play. Like I, re- like I don't remember many of them, but that's one I definitely recall. Anybody got one they recall? Yeah, I have one. I was Friar
2: Lawrence um, in Romeo and Juliet, and we actually had a live jazz band as for for everything in it. It was set in the 1920s, and so it was the entire prologue was was sung. They actually arranged. A, they had a jazz arrangement to the prologue, and they had uh, a vocalist sing it. And they they would do it throughout. I mean, it was a heavily edited version of the script, but, you know, every scene change, everything, it was all under the the backdrop of jazz. And it was very, it, it really helped. This is going back to, you know, creating the world of the play that did it because they were all, you know, dressed to the nines, you know, 20s attire and everyone in the show was too, but. It just fed the the show, um, the the setting and, and the world of the play, and I thought that was really really cool because you had you had a live jazz band, and that was like you know they were suspended on a platform I think like ten feet up. Oh yeah, and so everyone could see them. They were they were lit dimly
0: during scenes, and they yeah, but it was it was really cool. Also great for the party scene, or great I think is it one of the other yeah. balcony scene maybe? But there's music in the the fight now. scene uh, was oh yeah. fantastic Shit, yeah yeah man. that was cool yeah excellent. There was a lot of percussion there. Yeah. yeah. Anybody? Jason? Mike. Yeah. Um,
3: I mean, I've had I've had a few, though. I think the one I always remember is um, I was at Coastal. Uh, Robin directed a show called Moose Mating. Uh, and there's a scene where two characters are – it happened multiple times. They would use it with this thing. And, and you see it in Hamilton. They used it because it was a crack me up because when they do that scene in Hamilton – where they do the rewind sound where it's like, and they go back. So there was, we're doing the scene where I think my character is supposed to be jogging with this girl that he's attracted to, and he's just running. And he has a moment where he trips and falls, and the music that's like playing in it, it was just like, it goes out. And then I, my, my character has this scene. So if you're familiar with the show, the characters basically have these, their internal monologues, they they're having a moment with the other actor and they'll pause break the fourth wall. And then they'll give an internal monologue of what they're thinking. So the audience is always hearing what they're thinking at the same time they're having these relationship moments. So my character falls trips and he's like, has this moment like, Oh geez, I look at this. I'm an idiot. I can't believe it. And then I have to like get up and the music comes back on again. So they, they would do this thing technique throughout the show all times. And I always thought it's really cool. Cause the audience was like, it's like the audience, you're hearing the music and then it goes out inner monologue music comes back up. So it's this <laughs> constant sound effect they were doing throughout the whole show. And that's when I always remember. And then she, there was always things. Robin was always experimental with music. I mean, complete works of Shakespeare. We had a lot of musical things and a bunch of other plays. And so nice. I've always, yeah, music's just part of it. I, I get, I'm like Caleb. I have a pre-show mix. I usually listen to, um, to get me pumped into whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually in my car I'll usually be in my car like playing something that puts me where I want to well, be you know
0: that's what I used so. that's what I used to teach my students I mean really <clears throat> the theater experience can and really does start the minute you enter the door of the theater the front door of the theater mm-hmm. not the theater it should. itself it should and so what goes on in the lobby pre-show music wise and stuff can have a huge impact on setting the mood for people sure yeah I've I'm a huge believer
2: and i'm I, I still stand firm on this idea that you call back to what you're talking about, Steve. That is the moment they walk in, even even in the lobby. You know, pre-show music sometimes especially in you know Atlantic Stage. We don't have pre-show music necessarily. Speakers in the lobby, but as soon as they walk in, they um, they hear it. I am a firm believer that you 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 suit up the entire lobby. You have concessions that are themed to it, drinks, Now, all of this. I think it's if you can, as soon as they walk through the doors, introduce them to the world of the play that makes the experience for them.
0: Yeah, well, I, I used to go through that with my students because when I was talking about the role of the producer, which is something I think in the lobby, the producer would handle in collaboration with the director, what the director wants and the producer would supply it for the lobby. But um, I'd say, you know what, you know, I, Doubt was the play we were reading. And I was like, well, what would you want in the lobby of Doubt? What what could you put in the lobby of Doubt or how could you gussy it up so that you got the audience thinking about the issues of Doubt the minute they walked in the door? And so people are like- you Communion. Know, well, yeah, well, religious candles, uh, religious, those religious- we yeah. just... Catholic banners mm. that people use, dimmer lights. I mean, et cetera. So it's it's an opportunity. Now, not every show requires it, but why pass up an opportunity to influence an audience? We're all just trying to manipulate. The water it. basin. They yeah. Wash their hands. Before Amen. They, Whatever. You know. In our but in our in our particular case, we put up a blackboard where people could write down uh, questions, uh, ethical questions. Remember, I don't know if anybody remembers that. Yeah. It was a chalkboard, yeah. you know, and they could, the questions were anonymous or questions ethical questions that were bothering them. I think it was, but anyway, anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get Diverted, Mike, I want to hear from you, but um, yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah. Um, actually, I haven't thought about this in a while, but I think in an odd way, it kind of, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it kind of got me into sound design if I actually think about it. So this was back in high school, believe it or not. And this was back when I had no interest whatsoever in doing theater, none. I didn't get into theater until college. So in high school, I had no interest, but I was seeing a girl at the time who was in the show. So being the nice guy I was, I went to go see her in the show.
2: <laughs> humble, yeah,
1: you know among many things. so they they were doing this show, this obscure show called The Curious Savage, which I've never seen done anywhere else, and I hate the fact that I don't remember the author of this show. Um uh, but essentially, to sum it up really quickly, it is about this woman who gets uh, mistakenly thrown into a home for people who have been deemed mentally deranged. Um, so she gets mis- she's not mentally deranged. She gets thrown in there by mistake, and it's her trying to, like, essentially get out. Um, but it's more of like a comedy that it sounds serious and in some parts it is, but it's more of like a, I mean, high school is doing it, so it can't be super serious. Right. Right. right yeah. Um, it's like the but, kid
2: version of sucker punch. Something like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Although not quite, it has a happy ending though. Okay. Um, and speaking to that happy ending, she does eventually get out, but the rest of the people she's met and become friends with, they stay. And throughout the play, they've been talking about all their dreams and all their aspirations of who they wanted to be in life. And so the director chose her name was Miss Volpenheim. I'll never forget this. Um, she chose this moment to have the ending of the show. It would normally end on the woman walking out the door. And then that's the end of the show. Well, she added this sort of like tableau where spotlights would come down on each actor as their dream. So like the guy who became, who wanted to become the painter is painting something and, you know, they're doing the dreams they had, but on top of it, she had Jay Massonette's meditation from Thais, which is this violin piano piece. And God, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It was so like, I've never seen something so perfectly capture a moment in that. It was like a moment where like non-theater person suddenly goes, oh my God, like this is like movie quality, emotional appeal right here. I've never experienced this in this sort of way. Um, but that again, showcases what music can do for a moment. It was really hauntingly beautiful.
0: Now I can't help, but think of times when sound has failed me in theater. When it's either Hmm. taken me out of the moment by because it was just such a horrible choice, or the only time I could think I've ever been bothered by sound is when um, a director or the sound designer used uh, sound a lot and it, it failed. Like they made sound integral to whatever story was being told in the play, but but then the technology of the operator couldn't keep up, and so yeah, cues didn't come, and so everything felt like a train wreck after a while. Mm-hmm. That's the only time I think I've I can recall that I've had, and I can't think of specifics, but I've had sound get me out of a show. I'm like, Jesus, I'd rather just cut all the freaking cues so I can at least watch the, you know, listen and watch the damn play, instead of like wondering if the next essential sound cue that you put in there you think is essential is going to happen or not. Ugh. Anyway. Yeah. So I don't have anybody yeah. else's anybody. That's kind of a weird question though. Anybody remember negative sound experience in theater? That's kind of like strange.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I've got plenty. Oh my God. Really? really? Oh yeah. Yeah. I got a lot too. Really? Yeah.
0: Oh, I've my seen God. a okay. ton
2: of shows. Oh yeah. And it's not, I'm not going to limit it just the sound. There are several that I can draw from specific examples where sound has either taking me out because it was, it was not done well, or, uh, the selection itself, like specifically like the, the technical side of it, um, that's why I'm saying I'm not going to limit it, just the sound, the technical side of a show can make or break my experience because it's, if it's clear that for, for one, the actor's improv skills get tested real quick and you see real quick how well they are at being able to save something. And if they can't, it's, it's pretty painful. But just even if a selection for sound and this may maybe my selection for sound in the other side of the sky was this way for you, Jason. But a selection of sound for a show that just doesn't fit at all with the theme or is just too lyrically heavy. I just why? Why am I actually why am I sitting here? Why? I could listen to this if this is all the play is. I could just go listen to a soundtrack. You know, and that's, to me, it has to be complementary. It can't be, in my opinion, sound and set design. They can't be forefront. I don't think that they should, they should always be, they should always serve to elevate the idea of a story and they should always serve as supplemental um, and complementary. Not, they should never be forefront. I know that there are some people who love large sets that they love the proscenium feel, um, you know, lights and you know colors and set. There's a big sets, big costumes, but if they don't serve the play in some reason or for some,
0: for some reason, I, I, to me, it, it takes me out. Well, the, I mean, the bare, yeah. the bare truth of it, and this is another thing I taught my students is you can do theater with three things, uh, uh, actors, performers, and a script. So, you know, you can do, th- yeah. you can do theater anywhere, anytime you want to do it. Um, even in darkness, if you want, but you don't need sound to do theater. You don't what it does to me um, is it tells me you're trying to compensate something
2: for you're, you're trying to compensate for something that you fail to deliver on. If you're bad in you know, actor performance, you're trying to compensate and distract me from something with with something else. That's what it does yeah. for me. Um, Caleb,
3: I, I didn't hate your music in in that show. I think you're misunderstanding. I (laughs) I just, it it just wasn't for me. I didn't think it destroyed the show. The long Monday is
0: over. We're done. Okay. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. We're going to split the two, two sets. Break it up. Um, no, but I mean, I've seen, I've Steve, I've been, I've been in shows and I've seen shows that I have been, that have been utterly ruined. Um, Mm for me by sound Ooh, issues uh, that. and that's not just sound effects it's also it's also sound things uh and this is not a bad thing i mean i think the problem is if you're in professional theater um, it's one thing but i mean i i do give some alleviation to um i mean at tor there's definitely been microphone issues they've had before on that theater um especially for me i've been in a show where my mic died and
0: i mean luckily i'm an actor that knows how to project you yeah. know don't get me started on that whole subject because i don't i don't feel like they should be used there but that yeah yeah be. but i mean um, yeah no
3: i agree with you um yeah. but i mean i think that that space you have to almost have mics
0: sometimes because it's
3: just so big it's not acoustically designed well like wheel ride auditorium at coastal you could yell from this you could talk from the stage and they could it it was the way it was built it reflexively comes back off the back of the walls tr is an old movie theater so it's not insulation it, the, the insulation design on it so you can talk from the balcony and by the time you i mean on the on the deck and you speak in the balcony, they can't hear you. But if you're standing in the balcony and speak down to the deck, they can hear you perfectly fine. It's a really weird thing. So they need more. They do need a mic enhancement. It's just, I feel like they've become so this is not, I'm not thrown against TOR because mm. you know, they're, they're having to sing over canned music and that's always a tough thing too. You need microphones. Oh, to get sure. Oh, sure. For music, music is an kind of entirely time. different
0: thing. Straight plays. I just disagree yeah. with you completely. Yeah. And also there are ways to enhance. Sure uh on stage sound with area mics and stuff that don't of course. require blobs and stuff but anyway um yeah of course but yeah that, but, but i feel bad for you again knowing the role in, of sound in in uh, theater like we said if a show's ruined for you by sound whoa dude i'd be upset uh, well i mean i was in i was in a show uh and it was ruined
3: by sound mm. uh mostly because mm, i'm not going to go into the story it's uh but i mean i literally it was one of those shows where Okay. the other person on stage with you doesn't know what they're doing and they've had to enhance the person's sound in order for the audience to hear them. I mean, I, I, it's another story for another day. It could take up a whole podcast talking about it. Mm. Um, Jason, but,
1: I know what you're talking about, but yeah, I, let me, do. let me use a different example though. Um, okay. if we talk about how sound can ruin a moment. I mean, cell phones, right? If a cell phone sure. goes off, yeah. every actor on stage is immediately like what the hell just happened? And yeah. there's that split second moment of like, I'm out of it for that moment. Um, and sometimes regrettably that happens with sound design, right? Uh, I can think of subject was roses. There was a moment where um, there's a radio on the set. It's an old time 1940s radio. So uh, there's a moment where I'm supposed to go over and turn it on. Well, mistaking finger flip, whatever the sound the person who was hitting the cues for sound hit it too early. I was halfway to the radio and then it turned on. Well, as actor, what do you do? Do you play it off? Do you go like, oh, I had no idea what that was? Like so suddenly in the moment you have to go, what I honestly don't even remember what I did. Uh I feel like I kind of went over and did it anyway, which maybe wasn't the right choice. But I mean, it's one of those split second things where you're like, well, there goes my moment. I'm I'm totally thrown off right now. But again, that happens. It's like anything is accidents can happen. So I I,
3: I have to say something on this because this is just a sound cue design that something like that happened on stage one time and the actor played it off so well. It was actually Kirk Truslow. If he's listening, I'll give him a shout out. We're doing a play where the phone rings and he goes over to the phone, picks up the phone. It doesn't stop ringing. And he goes, Hello. He clicks it a couple times, keeps ringing, and then it cuts off. He goes, "He goes, this phone's a piece of shit. Oh, sorry. I use the language. Sorry, guys. But I mean, he literally just slams it down, and then it rings again. He goes, what do you want? I tried to answer you earlier. Just like the best moment. I thought and he played it perfectly. Yeah. I mean, just. <laughs> that's funny. So, anyway, What are you going to do? That that was your only horror story, Mike? I'm sure you've heard a lot oh,
1: more. I mean, yeah. I mean, like every show, something happens to me. But that's the one I bring up because it's such an easy example to know. Like, well. Sure. Stuff happens, especially in the sound world.
0: Yeah. So, right. I by the yeah. way, I'm sorry, and I, I know we're going to wrap it up here in a second. But why is it with this with the cell phone thing? You know, for the listeners at home, and maybe you don't go to theater much. Every time you go to a theater now, there's an announcement about it, either recorded or live. And then if it happens, inevitably, to me at least, they cannot find it. It goes right. on for like five rings, and you're like, "Okay, it happened, fine." But by the fifth ring, you're like, "Please, you know, like, come on." I mean. yeah
2: i think i think that's why as sound designer um for shows that i do i like i like practical sounds um for things like that so in the case of like a radio or something like that if i can rig it to actually work or like a phone ring if it can actually ring and then as soon as they pick up it's 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 a natural sound yeah um that to me is always it eliminates the possibility of that headache later on. Sure.
3: I agree with you. I like practical stuff better too. Yeah. I mean, we, in the Boeing Boeing, it was a, it was a real vacuum cleaner. They're going to try and play like a fake vacuum cleaner over it. And I was like, no, just let her plug the vacuum cleaner in and turn it on. It's going to be plenty loud. Yeah. We don't need it. You know?
2: Yeah. The only thing that I think I had to do, I don't remember exactly, it was for the other side of the sky and we couldn't do a practical sound because it was a toilet flush. And so I had to figure out a way to point source it. Um, I think I just, I think I just had a, a small speaker in the back with me and we just, you know, we just played it. Oh, I thought you had a mic in a toilet or something. (laughs) You're doing it live, foley (laughs)
0: kind of thing.
2: Well, we only had two speakers on left and right. And so if I just if I were just to go on one speaker and it was just coming from this part, but it was actually, you know, totally upstage, like, you know, center. Yeah. It wouldn't have made any sense. So we just kind of
0: point sourced it there. I have a terrible story real quick. I can share. This is a bad sound story. <laughs> I was doing Angels in America, trust us. And the, and the toilet was right back behind stage and it had, it had an open ceiling and a wooden door and not ideal, you know?
2: <laughs> uh,
0: and uh, well, there was an old guy in the show. Uh, he opened the show and then he had a lot of time off and uh, he had a colostomy bag. And he decided to empty that at a really quiet part of the show right after his scene at the beginning. And so it sounded <laughs> wow. like somebody pouring um, uh, uh, water no. from like a large distance into oh. it. And it went on and on and on. And I was like, wow, man, this is wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's a bad sound story no oh boy wow. oh my gosh yeah yeah you can and there's there's bad sound stories you know yeah you couldn't plus the toilet buzz
3: buzz had a few sound things during christmas carol i love buzz the day he's off his chains are making so much noise when he's leaving the stage and You just heard him walking yeah. <laughs> just kept going <laughs> like the whole background you're like he's still here yeah, yeah. <laughs> jacob marley's still in the building or am i
2: had i had bad a bad sound experience you know with you know a uh, Christmas carol as well. You know, I, I don't know if you weren't talking about my Marley. Were you?
3: No, no, no. I was talking about, um, when we did a Christmas carol at Lang stage.
2: Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Come on. Bu- the, bu- <laughs> not not the first one. one, the first oh, year. Okay. Where, okay. Where, where there was, there were chains in the one that I, I played Marley, but yeah, no, my singing was a bad sound. <laughs> so <laughs> it so Took me right out of the play. Productions. It was yeah. I, awful. I was, I was, I, was oh, Lord. I was in a
0: hospital bed and it hurt. I, it, it was like yeah, three was keys too high. <laughs> Caleb, come on. You knew that and was still three keys too high.
3: They didn't folly a sound in there over you. Like just dub, <laughs> dub over the top. Just, uh, it's just somebody singing. Somebody uh. singing. You're like.
0: Oh, well, that would have been great.
3: You just got somebody's right behind you. <laughs>
1: Avoid musicals like the plague people.
3: Yeah. That's right. uh, no, don't, don't, don't do it. I enjoy I enjoy musicals. Mike, you enjoyed a musical. You were just in a musical. What are you talking as, about?
1: Oh yeah, we don't. Have, as audience member, enjoy musicals. As actor, move away from musicals. <laughs> yeah.
0: <sighs> anyway. Well, I think that I mean <laughs> we have touched on the, the topic of sound for sure. I think we've covered yes, a we lot have. of a lot of things. I think we've explored your experiences too. So, um, I don't know. I think it was a good discussion. So hopefully, everybody at home who um, likes theater or, or listening to this maybe thinking about an element of theater that they don't don't normally think about or appreciate. But again, you are if you come to see theater and there is your sound in it, you are being manipulated by the director and the sound designer to make you try to feel something with that play. So you can think about that the next time you go see a show. Um, you know, everything's designed to make you, suck you into the world of the play and make you feel something. That's the only reason we're up there telling stories and sound is part of that. So that's what this discussion was about. So thanks, you guys. That was good for me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Maybe, Thank you, man. maybe yeah, on, on awesome. a,
2: on a following episode, we can interview uh, David DiMattia, who he was actually my introduction into sound design. Um, and you would, you would know him, Steve, cause he sound designed for uh, doubt. Oh, okay. Cool. Sweet. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: So it'd be interesting to see, uh, to hear his take on things.
0: Right on. But I appreciate it nonetheless. Thanks guys. Yep. Thanks man. Thank, Thank you, uh,